they'd say, what are you talking about? Like, I'm flooded with information. I get so many different sources of information and apps on my phone and different websites. And that's true. But what's missing is local reporting. The crisis in local journalism is real. And while the public at large may not realize that yet, there are people out there trying to change things for the better. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Stephen Waldman is the president and co-founder of Report for America, which is leading the effort to rebuild local news across America. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, what can you tell me about Report for America? Why did you found it and uh, what is its mission? Well, it's a national service program that places great emerging journalists into local newsrooms to report on undercover topics and communities. And then we pay half the salary and the community and the news organization pays the other half. And we, we just put 225 reporters in the field and the goal is to get to 1,000 by 2024. And how are you accomplishing that? We have two competitions, one for reporters, and we had 1,800 candidates for about 170 slots this last time, so it was very competitive and a very high-quality group, mostly with uh, two or three years of experience. And then there's also a, a competition for newsrooms. They have to compete to get these fantastic subsidized reporters, and they, they do that by identifying what their gaps in coverage are. What are the really important gaps in coverage and how would you use a Report for America journalist to fill that gap? And then we match the two and they become employees of that newsroom. And in fact, we have the application window is open right now for newsrooms that want to be in the program for next year. What's the deadline for that? And when do you choose journalists to uh, fill those positions? The final deadline is September 30th for the newsrooms, and we choose the core members after we choose the newsrooms, so toward the end of the year. And then this is for the term that starts June 1st of 2021. Okay. So what, what type of expertise are we talking about? What type of you know, slots are these newsrooms looking to fill? Well, they tend to be in three categories. One is a kind of big news desert, geographic news desert. So there'll be a whole county that you know, doesn't have a reporter. Like the Lexington Herald Leader had placed our reporter in Eastern Kentucky, where they used to have reporters, and they reopened the Pike County Bureau. There's a reporter in Arlington, Texas, which is a really huge area that didn't have a lot of journalism. Then a second group is around particular issues. We have, I think, 20 or 30 reporters covering healthcare. So that was requested by the newsroom saying this is an urgently needed beat that we don't have people covering right now. And then the third category are communities, meaning, you know, Hispanic community or African-American, or we have seven or eight reporters covering Native American territories. About a third of the reporters speak Spanish, and they asked, the newsrooms asked us for Spanish speakers. So those are the, the three main groupings. Okay. And so what are your concerns about the state of local media right now? Oh, it's collapsing. This is central to the health of democracy and it's absolutely collapsing. I mean, it was, as you know, it was, there were a lot of problems even before COVID, the basic, you know, business model disruptions were leading to these big contractions, you know, since 2000 or so, the number of reporters has 
dropped by about 60%, which puts it on the same scale as the collapse of the coal industry, just to put it in some perspective. But in this case, you know, the impact is that communities can't solve their own problems and people don't have information on who to vote for and polarization goes up and corruption goes up. And that was all happening before COVID. And it's just gotten much, much worse since COVID hit because a lot of the businesses that you know, are not able to open are also advertisers. And so advertising has just fallen through the floor. So there's already been scores of newsrooms that have just shut down and we're expecting many more and bankrupt, more bankruptcies and mergers to come. Is the public in general aware of this outside of the fact that they're not getting a particular type of news? Definitely not. This is a shocking thing to, I think, people in the field, but there was a, a Pew survey that came out just last year that said that I think three quarters of the population thought everything was going fine with local news and they had plenty of money and there just has no, no sense of what a crisis situation it is in such an important part of how democracy works. So that's one thing that's got to change. And part of it is that, you know, when you talk to regular people outside the profession about there being news deserts or crisis in new local news or something, they say, what are you talking about? Like, I'm flooded with information. I get, I have so many different sources of information and apps on my phone and different websites. And that's true. But what, what's missing is local reporting. Uh, original local reporting is the piece that's not there. And it's not immediately obvious to people when you're being flooded with information that there's one type of information that you're not getting enough of. And I think it's become a little more obvious to people with COVID because, you know, it's so, so kind of obviously important to be getting local information, but it's still a problem this disconnect between the reality of the crisis and how it's perceived by people in the community. Yeah, that's one of the sort of crazy things about COVID. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of, you know, national stories about, about leadership and about, you know, getting information out there. But, you know, COVID's a really local story. What's the infection rate in my, you know, my community? Where can I go get a test? You know, those really kind of pivotal things that, that if there's nobody locally there to, to, uh, to cover them, that's a gap. I mean, you sort of alluded to this before that the importance of local journalism when it comes to our democracy. Can you sort of expand on that? A lot of it's kind of intuitive, but there have been a lot of academic studies that have come out in the last five or 10 years that sort of back up what you might expect, which is when there's less local journalism, there's more corruption. There was an amazing study that showed that the cost of borrowing for a city went up when there wasn't a newspaper because the markets assume there's more corruption and waste, which there usually is. You see it in voter turnout. Like literally it's trackable that you have less lower voting rates. And it makes sense. You're not, you know, people aren't being told about the importance of the race and they're not being given information about the, the candidates or who to vote for. There's also less cross-ticket voting. People are relying more on just straight party lines, which points to something else that's maybe a little less intuitive, which is that the collapse of local news has helped make polarization worse. The vacuum created by the, the contraction of local news is often filled by national news and national cable news, and which is more polarized. And so we get a lot of national news and a lot of partisan news, but not 
as much around local issues that cut across different you know, different lines. And I think the net effect of all of this is, well, one is that people don't have the information they need just to make good decisions for their families, you know, of like, if you don't know what's really happening at your school, it's hard to make decisions about your kids. If you don't know, you know, where the COVID tests are going to be or what the hours are, it's going to be hard to make decisions. And then also as on a community level, it's hard for communities to solve their own problems when there's no common set of facts, there's no understanding what the problems are, and there's no kind of way to work those through. So, you know, I know one of the things that, that your organization is working on is the, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. Can you sort of talk what was behind that and where its sort of status is right now? So we're involved in a, a coalition that we help bring together called the Rebuild Local News Coalition. And it's focused on locally owned and nonprofit media, but is working in partnership with all sorts of other local media folks, too. And the idea is that, you know, the crisis has gotten so severe that there needs to be government help. And we say that with some trepidation, because I think none of us are particularly thrilled about the idea of government help. There's obvious risks to the government helping the press. You know, it's seems a little weird for the muckrakers to be taking money from the muckmakers. But we kind of come to two conclusions. One is that this is an existential crisis for the media. So we have to be open to this. And secondly, that there are actually ways of doing this that preserve editorial independence and yet get the local media the help it needs so it doesn't go away. So this act called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act is really good. And it's sponsored by a Democratic congresswoman named Ann Kirkpatrick and a Republican named Dan Newhouse from Washington State. And what I really like about it is it provides money to consumers and businesses to help local media, rather than putting the emphasis on a government agency deciding who to give the money to. So for instance, it gives a $250 tax credit to everyone, to anyone, to buy a subscription or to make a donation to a nonprofit local news organization. And that it also provides a tax credit to local businesses to buy advertising in local media. And it specifically says it, it, it's for local news media, not for Facebook or Google. And we, we just felt like that was a really interesting approach because it really gets money in the hands of local news, but it's up to the local residents and businesses to sort of decide, you know, where to put that money, but the government is kind of magnifying your purchasing ability. You describe the trepidation that journalists might have with having some type of support from the government to sort of, you know, help them sustain and help the industry sort of move forward. But, you know, there there are people in Congress who are very vocal about the fact that we, we shouldn't be paying for NPR. What would you say to them? Well, First of all, one thing I really like about the Local Journalism Sustainability Act is it doesn't involve a government agency writing checks to particular newsrooms. In that sense, it's closer to something like the charitable tax deduction, where you give a donation to a charity and you get a deduction and no one is like criticizing you or telling you, oh, that's a crazy charity you just gave to. And I think a lot of the people who complain about you know, federal funding for NPR are perfectly happy to have the 
tax deduction for charitable giving. Secondly, I think that there is a difference in perception between local news and national news. Local news is more trusted. It is less polarizing. It's less partisan. And then finally, I mean, not to get into the debate about NPR, is like the fact is a teeny tiny percentage of money that goes to NPR now comes from the government. You know, it's just not a major funder for, for NPR. You know, public radio has survived because local donors have supported it. And I do think public radio is an interesting example, though, of how to look at a government role in the sense that if you go back to the 1960s, there were a few hundred sort of small, frail public radio stations, and they were doing good work. They weren't invented by the federal government. They were out there created, you know, often at universities. But in 1967, they passed the Public Broadcasting Act, which breathed life into it and created the modern public broadcasting system. Mostly, it was done through formulaic grants to help with basic, you know, keeping the lights on, buying the transmitting towers and things like that. It was done in a content neutral way. And that is, I think, the right way to go about helping the media. If you want to go even back farther, the very first effort of the government to help the media was back in the era of the founding fathers, where they they gave postal rate discounts to newspapers. And it wasn't content-based, you know, the Federalist Papers got it, the Jeffersonian Papers got it, but it really helped to create the independent free press in America. So how can newsrooms help spread the message about this bill and the importance of protecting community news? Well, go to the website rebuildlocalnews.org and you can read about the bill there and basically make your voice heard by contacting your members of Congress. One of the things we're trying to do right now is to get this piece of legislation into the Senate COVID relief bill. So contact your senators about that. And then if you're closer to members of of the House, try to get them to co-sponsor the legislation. It's H.R. 7640. As you said, it's the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And if you go to rebuildlocalnews.org, and go to the Make Your Voice Heard button, it actually can, you know, literally help connect you to your member of Congress or give you uh, tips on how to connect with them. But it's, it's really important that, that people, both readers and listeners, as well as, you know, owners and editors, weigh in now about the importance of this issue. Okay. And I just wanted to circle back before we wrap up here to talk a little bit more about the uh, Report for America. You know, there are a lot of factors that have sort of led to the decline of, of local news, and all of them have to do, some, to do something with the sustainability of newsrooms, either the lack of readership or the lack of, of advertisers. Are you doing anything about, like with Sinclair Broadcasting, where you have a a corporation that's bought up a, a number of outlets and is, is sort of making the news that they're putting out less, I don't know what's the word I want to use, less diverse in content. Well, our reporters are very focused on nitty gritty reporting. And I think the best response to things like Sinclair is to flood the zone with real reporters in real newsrooms covering really important issues for people that don't track partisan lines necessarily. And 
let's not create these vacuums where partisan websites or TV stations can come in. Let's fill that space with really trusted, well-researched reporting. Okay. Stephen, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think you're doing some great work here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate having, having me on. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.